Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, welcome to Journey Church. My name is Nathan McCallum. I am the interim preacher uh, through this transition time for us uh, and the life of our church. And I'm just thrilled and honored to break down God's word for us each week as we gather together. If you're a first time guest or if this is your first time back in a while with school getting going and everything, I just want to welcome you and tell you that we're so glad you're here. We've prayed that this service would bless your heart, that it would draw you close to Jesus. And uh, it, that's our prayer again, as I say every week, that's our prayer, whether it's your first time or your thousandth time, we gather together to be encouraged in God's word and in community uh, together. So if it's your first time here and I'll let you know as well, we are praying for the school year. I know uh, for a lot of you parents, you're looking forward to routine, uh, if you're anything like me this week. Um, and so praying for you teachers and you students as you head back to school, I know college students uh, you always get that extra week, and so uh, you're, you're, you're about a week away. So uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. We're going to be in Psalm 19 today. Uh, the series, we're starting a new series today called Pathways, uh, Pathways of Journey. Um, and here, here's kind of the idea. I know that's kind of an odd title, or maybe, you know, maybe it's just kind of like off, like I don't really know what that means. So let me just kind of briefly explain what Pathways is, like why we're doing this. Back in April, uh, Kevin preached... I think it was like April 3rd, Kevin preached out of Mark 4 and he talked about at the end, he, he kind of laid out during this season of transition for our church, here, here are four things that I believe the Lord wants Journey to be known for, not because of our reputation, but because of just who we are. We want to be known for these things. We want to be marked by these things. And he said he wants, he believes that God wants us to be a people of the word, a people of the word. A people of prayer, a people of prayer, okay? A people on mission and a people loving their city. So a people of the word, a people of prayer, a people on mission and a people who love their city. And so as we were talking about the summer sermon series and the things we we're gonna preach, I said, you know, after Philippians and Jonah, I would like to preach at least one week on each of those, what he called at the time, pillars of journey. And we felt like it would be a good time as we get ready to kick off the fall to look at what are the four things that we want to be about as a church, that we want it to shape us as a church, and then look at what does God's word say about those things. And so just to clarify from the get-go, just the idea of a pathway carries with it an idea of work. It carries with it an idea of a journey, right? And so just to, just to be very clear from the get-go, the foundation of anything we do, the foundation of any calling about on our life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the only way we are reconciled to God is through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we talk over the next four weeks, keep in mind that as we talk about things we want to do or the type of people we want to be, that those are all undergirded and only possible by the gospel, okay? So, but this idea of pathways connotes an activity, like, and that's actually pretty well in keeping with the call of the New Testament. Jesus says things like, narrow is the way. And he says things like, follow me. These are actions. Paul would pick up in Colossians and say, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your life in him. This is not anything new. Thinking about your life as a journey or a path that you're following is just 
keeping in tune with the New Testament. But not only that, a pathway connotes an ongoing pursuit, not an arrival. It's not like, yeah, I'm a person of the word, I've read it before. But it keeps in mind like, no, I'm, I'm continually in it. I'm, I'm letting it shape me. I'm continuing in prayer. I am sharing the gospel. These are things that continually happen. There's a pursuit there, not ever really arriving until we reach glory. It's a repetitive way of life. And the other idea I think that's really helpful when we think about pathways is that it connotes a way that is laid out before you, not a new trail, right? I mean, we're, these four things, people of the word, people of prayer, people on mission, people who love their city, these are not like unique to journey. Uh, sorry if that rains on your parade. This, this is Christianity 101 for 2,000 years. Jesus was a person of the word. Jesus was a person of prayer. Jesus came on mission. Jesus loved his neighbor. We are simply saying we want to follow in the path that's been blazed before us by our Savior and by the church for 2,000 years. And so that's what we want to do. There's definitely more rhythms in the scripture, more pathways like fasting and silence and solitude and Sabbath. But these are the four we want to highlight this summer as we wrap up summer and head into fall to say this is what we believe journey needs to be focused on as it shapes us. And so today is the word of God, the pathway number one, people of the word. And one of the unique aspects of Christianity is that we actually believe God speaks to us. That's what we believe, that he isn't some distant God, but that he actually engages us where we are in the present. We can hear his voice in our hearts. Sometimes we hear his voice in our minds in prayer. But if you're anything like me, can I get an amen? You're like, is that really God? Like, is that, did I hear that? Or, or is that just me? Or, and so it's helpful that while he does speak to us through our hearts, through our minds, through our spirit, he has also given us his word. He's given us the Bible, and Christians believe that the Bible is the primary way in which God speaks to his people. And since the Protestant Reformation, which began in 1517 AD, one of the key advancements was having a Bible that is translated in common language. Prior to the Reformation, the Bible that Western Christians typically had for about a thousand years was the Latin Vulgate. The problem was most of us couldn't read Latin at the time. And so one of the byproducts under God's grace of the Reformation was that the Bible began to get translated into common languages. Martin Luther translated it in German. William Tyndale translated it, most of it into English. And now some 500 years later, you pull out your phone or your iPad, you click version, and there's 69 different English translations on your phone. It's amazing. But we didn't get there easily, and we definitely didn't get here by chance. For some translators, early on, it cost their lives. Early on in the Protestant Reformation, people were burned alive for translating the Bible. So why would they go to those links? Why would they do that? Because it was a conviction of these reformers that God's word should be available and accessible to everyone that would want to read it. Protestants believed scripture had a higher authority than the church tradition. In fact, they would say scripture holds ultimate authority and it holds ultimate authority for us as well. We at Journey believe 
that God's word is holy and inspired. We actually believe, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. We actually believe that. But you might be surprised to hear that our society isn't fully in line with that. We're actually pretty divided over the Bible in America. In 2021, Barna, which is a research group, paired up with American Bible Society, and they did a poll of what Americans' views were of the Bible. And the study really, I'm not gonna go over the whole study, there's like six different questions, but it really shows just how divided we really are. Now, on the one hand, it was somewhat encouraging that this may come as a shock to you. Since 2020, Bible consumption has actually gone up. Um, not really sure why that would be, right? Uh, but the reality is we're still very divided over scripture. And here's one of the questions that I find was the most telling. This was a question from the research. Do you think our country would be worse off, better off, or about the same without the Bible. Like if we didn't have the Bible in our culture, in our country, how do you think that would impact us? 54% said worse off. So about half said, yeah, definitely we would be in a world of trouble if we just all of a sudden didn't have the Bible. 33% said we'd probably be about the same. 14% said better off. Now, if you're doing math, you're like, that's 101% because we, we do everything 101, right? I think there's probably some rounding up in there. But what you're seeing there is the reality is that we are basically almost 50-50 where some of us would say this country would be in a world of hurt without God's word. And then half the country goes, eh, it would probably be about the same. And then some of those people go, oh, I think we'd actually be, be better off. It's unique. Our country's view of Scripture, it's intriguing. The point that I'm making, though, is that we are divided almost evenly between whether the Bible's important or not, dangerous or not, impactful or not. God's Word is inconsequential to many in our society, and yet the other half of our society believe it has the highest authority in our lives. That's a polarizing book, the Bible is. Yet it's not just our society that has many people disconnected from God's word, even in the church. We seem to have a bit of a disconnect with it. And I think if you were to really look at it, you, you can boil it down to confidence is what I believe it really comes down to. Number one, I think we lack confidence that we can relate to it because we find it hard to understand. Like it can be really intimidating. We open it up, like I don't even know where to start. I, don't, I can't pronounce that name. And so it it's, can be very intimidating. But I think also we don't have confidence entirely that what it says is all true. And now why is that? Well, I think for some reason, like some of us, we just don't like some of the things it says. And that would be normal if God outside of humanity speaks to humanity. There's going to be some areas where it rubs us. But some, other, some of us may think it just seems kind of old-fashioned. Or maybe, which I think is also common, we think we know what the Bible says and we don't like what we think it says when it actually doesn't say that. And so for a lot of us, we may not have confidence just because we're not so sure it's true. But thirdly, I think we wrestle with confidence because we aren't being changed by it. I think if we're honest, there's gonna be some of us in this room that go, I've read the Bible for a long time 
and I just can't seem to care for it. It doesn't seem to change me. It doesn't seem to encourage me. Or fourth, maybe we struggle with confidence because we often see God's word used as a weapon instead of as an agent for healing in our world. And yet, in the midst of this divided cultural climate regarding the Bible, and in the midst of life where Christians often feel completely disconnected from God's word, or at least somewhat disconnected from God's word for a myriad of reasons, we at Journey are saying we believe that one of the pathways of Journey should be that we are a people serious about God's word, that it's foundational for us. So the question is, how do we reconnect with God's word if we feel disconnected? Or if you're getting great delight and encouragement from God's word right now, how do you maintain that delight and stay connected to God's word? And how do we love God's word and be a people founded on his word and, st- and, yet, and actually use it as an agent of healing in our city instead of a weapon? So let's journey down the pathway of God's word today by looking at God's word itself. And there's a lot of places. If you've been in, in church a long time, there is a lot of places we can go. But I felt the Lord was actually leading me to kind of hone in on one place and to look at Psalm 19. So let's reconnect with the vitalness and the vitality of Scripture by looking at Psalm 19. And when we do, we're going to see the prompting for the Word. We're going to see the authority of the Word. We're going to see the radiance of the Word. And we're going to see the person of the Word. The prompting of it, the authority of it, the radiance of it, and the person of the Word. So let's dive in, starting in verses one through six. Here's what the psalmist says, David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Yet they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. One of the many aspects that I love about the Psalms is how poetic they are. Word pictures are amazing. Metaphors, they'll just pull you in. You know, I could stand here and look at you guys and say, God's glory is seen in creation. And that would be amazing. It'd be a beautiful thing. But to say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Well, that's altogether more illuminating. And the heavens do declare the glory of God, don't they? I don't know how early you got up this morning. I was driving in around eight o'clock on the bypass and it was cloudy enough, but there were little holes in the clouds and the sun was bursting forth. And it's amazing because I don't see that a lot, but that's the second time I've seen it this week. Uh, or Wednesday, uh, Jenny Beth Brooks and I were moving some furniture into a sorority house on campus. And 
were coming over the bridge, uh, like coming down Red Wolf towards ASU, and right over ASU is relatively clear night, but there was this patch of clouds, and the sun rays were just bursting all around the clouds. And then we, like an hour later, we're, we're walking to the dumpster at ASU, and then now the sun has set, and it's like right over Arkansas Hall was like this this massive cloud that the middle looked dark, like it could rain, and the outsides were pink and purple. And now my six-year-old doesn't look at that, and I don't have to explain to him how beautiful that is. I don't have to be like, now look, son, this is how science works, because I have no idea. Thankfully, I don't have to tell him that. But what does he do? He's amazed. He runs in and tells his mom, mom, you got to come see this. You got to come look at this. Isn't it interesting that when people vacation, they often go to see places that are enormous, that are beautiful, that are vast, that are breathtaking, like the ocean, the mountains, the Grand Canyon, the redwoods. They want to raft in whitewater rapids. Why is that? It's as if we're meant to look at creation, the skies and the creation that we are in and feel its enormity and its beauty. It's like we actually like to see photos of space and be slack-jawed at just how vast it is. It's interesting that we actually like to feel small. We stand at the bank of the ocean with a mixture of excitement and fear. We climb into a raft on a rapid-laden river with anticipation but a touch of anxiety. We climb a mountain and simultaneously love the view while yet at the same time respecting gravity and realizing that it'd be devastating if we slipped. And we look at these beautiful moments in creation, these sunrises and sunsets, mountains and rivers, oceans and deserts, and we're in awe of them. And our hearts tell us that we aren't here by chance, but we're made to actually rejoice in this beautiful creation. This is called general revelation that God reveals himself generally in creation. Yet, this creates a problem for us, for honest, because the heavens do declare the glory of God. But that's all we get. We get a shadow of his glory. We get a little crumb of the feast that is his goodness. It's general revelation. You remember as a kid, or if maybe as an adult, I won't judge you, licking the bowl of batter when you've made cookies. And you've put the cookies in the oven and there's, my mom used to use these little beaters and I get to lick the beater. And I remember getting fired up for that, but it wasn't as exciting as the cookie, right? You get a small taste, but it just whets your appetite for the real thing. And this is like general revelation. You get a taste of the goodness of God, but you don't have the context for that goodness. Seeing the glory of God in creation is wonderful, but we don't actually get to know him personally this way. Notice what Psalm 19.3 says. They, talking about creation, the skies, they have no speech. They use no words. Sound is not heard from them. They can't, they can't tell us what we need to know. They can't tell us how we need to know this creator. They can only tell us something about him, that he's beautiful. And that's a problem because Romans 1.20 says that puts us in a bad spot. 
In Romans 1, Paul says this, for since the creation of the world is in, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. And look what he says, so that people are without excuse. Uh Uh-oh. If this was our only way of knowing God by observing his glory in his vast and beautiful creation, we would actually be hopeless. This is why we send people out on mission. We can see his eternally, we can see he is eternally powerful, but is he eternally loving? We can see the creator is divine, but what is his disposition? We need to know him. We need to know what the creator is like. What does he desire? Does he have a name? How can I relate to him? Does he want me to relate to him? Does he want something from his creation? Does he, some, does he want something from me, a created being? Don't you see the observance of the glory of God in creation is prompting for the word of God. We need to know this God, like really know him. We need more than a general revelation from God. We need a special revelation. And in his great mercy, he's given us a special revelation. He's given us his word so that we may know him. And so as you look at verses seven through nine, notice the adjectives that the psalmist David uses as he speaks about the word of God. Look at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. Verse eight, the commands of the Lord are radiant. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is pure. The decrees of the Lord are firm, perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, firm. These are not just words about their truth. Though that is true, they are much more. This speaks to the authority of God's word. Think for a minute too, just about the logic of this. If God made a world and he made us to inhabit his world and then to relate to him and relate to one another, to be his image bearers on earth, wouldn't it actually make total sense and logic for him to give us information about him? God having a word is actually really quite logical. But for the psalmist, God's word is not just theoretical or abstract. It's logical, it's concrete, and it's true. But more than logical, God having trustworthy statutes and precepts, right commands and decrees means he has authority because this is his world. J. Vernon McGee once made a comment where he said, you may not like that God has his word and you would rather have your word, but you don't have a world. Thus, the psalmist says God's law is perfect. And this word perfect could also mean without blemish. God's law, the Torah, is without blemish. It's perfect. The Old Testament, specifically the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I know you probably only get to Exodus before you tap out, 
uh, in your Bible reading plan. I tap out at numbers typically only because I actually like Leviticus. But all of that is perfect. Not only that, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. When the Lord sets out his rules, he does so in a way that we can trust. We live in a country with a lot, and most of it justifiable probably, mistrust in our government and the legislative body from both sides of the aisle and from every perspective. But we can't transpose that on God because God's ways are trustworthy. And because he is the creator, we can actually see that his statutes are to lead to human flourishing. They are for our good and we can trust them. And here's the deal. This is the very point where we are actually most vulnerable. It's still the point of attack in every human heart, the voice in our head and the voice in our heart that asks, is God really good? Can you really trust him? Think about it. The original anarchy against God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 wasn't a big war waged with God with weapons. Like the powers of darkness, like the serpent didn't show up with an Uzi and give it to Adam. The crafty sermon, serpent went after God's trustworthiness. Did God really say you can't eat from this tree? Because you know he just wants to keep you under his thumb. He doesn't really love you. He definitely doesn't want what's best for you. He wants to suppress you. And the fall of humanity and all of creation with it began with believing a lie about God. That's how it all started. It began with an attack on God's trustworthiness, on his goodness, and Adam and, believe, Adam and Eve believed the lie that God's statutes were wrong, not right. And we still buy into that lie. And that's why for some people in this room and in our culture and our society today, some of these statements can be hard for us to swallow. The precepts of the Lord are right? Like all of them? He's, he hasn't made an error in judgment anywhere? I mean, really? The decrees of the Lord are firm? Like surely if he's a good God, he will change his mind on some of these regressive ideas, right? I mean, I like that, his, like, I like that he decrees that he's forgiving, but I don't really like what he decrees about sex inside of marriage. Or maybe you're like, I like that he actually, actually like what his decrees are about sexuality, but I'm not really big on his decree about opposing the proud and all of us having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all of us being equally in need of grace. You see, for some of us, these are hard pills to swallow. And for some of you in the room today, the question is this, do you believe God is telling the truth? Do you believe he's telling the truth? Do you believe his ways are perfect? And let me tell you, this is a safe place to be honest. It's a safe place to be honest. If you find yourself going like, I don't really know that I do, we're not gonna shame you for that. When you hear that voice questioning God's goodness, what do you think? Who do you believe? Who do you believe? 
For some of you in the room, you would say, yes, I believe God and I believe his word is trustworthy. And if that's you, I would ask you this, then do you want to submit to his word? His word doesn't have partial authority, it has full authority. Do you wanna submit to it? Do you wanna be changed by it? I believe you probably do. That's why you're here. And the psalmist has good news for us because he wants us to experience God's word. Notice what he says in 19.8b. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. What does it mean for God's word to be radiant? What does it mean for anything to be radiant? That there's a, it's bright, it's shining. So what does it mean for God's word to be radiant? Well, he tells us actually right there in verse eight, it gives light to the eyes. But what does that actually mean? There's a theme throughout scripture of this idea of light and dark and the contrast of the two. And from the beginning, literally Genesis 1-2, the second verse in the Bible, we learn that the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the face, the surface of the deep, darkness. And what happens in the beginning? Verse three, God said, let there be light and there was light. From the first page of scripture, the theme of God bringing light into darkness is referenced. And it will be a motif throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. John says that Jesus is the light of the world, that the light has come and darkness has not overcome it. This is a theme throughout all of scripture, light and dark. And when God steps into a bleak situation, he brings light and light brings life. Here in Psalm 19.8, we see the commands of the Lord are radiant because they give light to the eyes. The word of the Lord actually allows us to see. See what's true. See he's trustworthy. See what's right. To see. And when we see the Lord's word and we come under the authority of it, notice what we experience. Go back to verses seven and eight. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Refreshes the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. We experience God's word and we experience refreshment. We are made wise. Our hearts rejoice we see reality, what's real. Hebrews 4, 12 says God's word is alive and active and it would have to be for us to experience these things. How can God's word though refresh our soul? Because it aligns us with reality. It gets us out of the fog of what we think is real and brings crystal clarity by shining radiant light what is real. Living your life, though, in opposition to the way the world was actually designed to work is like walking around at night with the power out in your house. Even if it's in your house and you think you know the way, 
It's dangerous and it can be exhausting. I usually get up before my wife and a lot of times I get up when it's still dark. And occasionally, it's not her fault, there's something left in the floor. And I just, a lot of times I'll notice it when I'm coming to bed, but I'll just think I just need to make sure and remember and avoid that in the morning. And I usually do. A couple of times I've stubbed my toe, but, but the point is like when you get up, you're not just getting up and blazing out of bed. You're, you're, you're very careful because you're in the dark. You can't see. You can't see. Just a 10-foot walk in pitch black when you don't know your way makes you on edge. And this is how we go about life in God's world without God's word. Tripping, falling, going the wrong direction, expecting refreshment only to find exhaustion. But God's word comes and it turns the light on. His commands are radiant, giving light to our eyes. Now you can see. You see how God has designed the world. You see the ditches to avoid that will bring heartache. You see what's true. It refreshes your soul. It brings joy to the heart. It makes you wise and it begins to cure the weariness that we all carry in our hearts when we are searching for the safety and truth in the snares of lies. It opens our eyes. It lets us see. And when you experience God turning the light on in your life, it's only natural to respond like the psalmist, verse 10, they are more precious than gold the much pure gold, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. The radiance of God's word, it refreshes your soul and makes you wise and he allows us to see what's really true. And best of all, it dispels darkness. It's sweet as honey, it's more valuable than gold. Don't you see, don't you want to? And if you're like me, you would say, I do want to. I want to be a person whose life is illuminated by God's word. I want to see reality and submit to the word of the Lord. But how do you become a person of the word? How do we become a people of the word? Well, look at how the psalmist finishes it out. It starts with your heart. Notice the heart of a person of the word in verses 12 through 14. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord my rock and my redeemer. A person of the word isn't perfect. That's good news. They have errors. We need the word of God to discern where our errors are. Because left to doing what we feel right or wrong isn't stable. How many of you, just show of hands, how many of you have changed your mind on something you believe was right or wrong in your life? Like used to think it was right, not so sure it's right anymore, okay? How about in the last five years, 10 years? Same, because our own view of right and wrong, it fluctuates all the time. We need our creator to show us so we can actually avoid errors. But once we know the truth, we're still tempted to have willful sins. Another participation, anyone ever done something you knew was wrong and did it anyway? Those that didn't raise their hand just did that. You're lying. 
Yeah, we've all done it. Like, had that check in your spirit. You're like, ah, I shouldn't do this. But you went for it anyway. Husbands, ever had that conversation with your wife and have that check? Like, don't say that. But you blow right on. And then you realize, oh my gosh, the spirit was right. I shouldn't have said that. I mean, it's a fact, we all do this, but in all seriousness, because this is serious, we have all sinned willfully. It's not just that we've made an error because we didn't know. Some of us did know, and we did it anyway. And so the psalmist asks God to keep him from willful sins, that they won't rule over him. And he closes with a plea that words of his own mouth and meditations of his own heart would be seen as acceptable before the Lord. What we see in the last three verses is that the person of the word still struggles with sin. He still sins. She sometimes sins willfully. But because we can see reality by the radiance of God's word, he's able to discern his waywardness back to God. And this person's heart is pleading with God to change them. Don't let me fall into willful sins. Don't let me make errors. Don't let my heart meditations be unacceptable. He's pleading with him to change him, to forgive him, to give him a heart that pleases the Lord. And so today, as we close, I don't just want you to see the heart of a person of the word. I think we need to see the hope of a person of the word. Because if God's word is perfect, if it's true, if it's right and it's firm, how can we in our errors and our moments of willful sins still ever hope to actually become a people of the word? And we know, like we know that God hears the words of our mouths that aren't always good. He hears the good and the bad words. He sees the meditations of our hearts, the good meditations and the bad ones. And so how can you how can I truly move from being a person who agrees with the word to being a person who quotes the word to become a person of the word? The way to become a person of the word is to be sustained by the son and his powerful word. Look at what Hebrews 1 says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He speaks. His son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We have God's word that is radiant, giving light to our eyes. But now in the new covenant, we have more than that. We have his spoken word that we have more than his spoken word through the prophets, we have the spoken word through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And as you see in 1, 3, Jesus is the radiant son who embodies the glory of God in a way in which we can actually come into contact with God and know him in a personal way. But how can that happen? We've got willful sins. We've got errors because he's made purification for your sins. The errors we made not knowing that they were sin? Yes. What about our willful sins? Oh yes. How about the bad words of my mouth, the hateful speech, the meditations of my heart that are not always pleasing in God's sight? He covered them. The word made flesh, made purification for your sins. And we are now sustained and secure in him, not by being perfect people of the word, but by believing in him and his work of redemption on our behalf so that we can be changed by the word. Jesus, the only true and complete person of the word, who in his radiance sees all your reality and my reality, including the present you, your present struggle, your present failure, your present mistake, your present sin. He sees you and he says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will refresh your soul. I will give you joy in your heart and I will give light to your eyes. Just give me your heart and I will be your rock and redeemer. This is the word he speaks over you. This is the word he speaks over me. Will you be a person of this word? Will we be a people of the word? As we close as a call to action today, if you would say in this room, like you're not a follower of Jesus, the call to action to you is to come to Jesus. And you may have grown up here and like, we're gonna have a come to Jesus meeting. That's not what this come to Jesus meeting is all about. This is coming to receive refreshment for your soul. To say, I need you. I need you to turn the light on in my life and change me from the inside out. Because he wants to turn on his radiant light in your life. If you would be here today and say that you are a disciple of Jesus, then I've got three things as we close for you. And I'm not saying you need to do all three of these things, just pick one. But these are, again, the call to action, what goes from our head to our heart, now to our hands. And here's the first one. And I want you to hear me. Don't buy the lie that you can't understand the Bible. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It has sabotaged you your whole life. That's not to say the Bible's easy to understand, but here's the deal. If you are in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word for you. Devotionals are great, but you don't have to have a devotional to break down the scripture for you. 
trust the Spirit. There's a reason when you sit down and read the Bible and your mind goes to your to-do list, you go to that conversation that frustrated you yesterday, you have an enemy that's telling you a lie that you can't understand it and he's distracting you. Don't buy the lie. Apply yourself and ask the Spirit to open up your eyes to wonderful things from his word and he will delight to do it. But not only that, it is hard. There's definitely all kinds of scriptures. There's wisdom, there's narrative. It's not all the same. You can't read it exactly all the same. So the second call to action for you if you're to follow Jesus is to study God's word in Christian community. We need to help one another in this. And it's bigger than just Journey Church. Like there are amazing study Bibles out there that our brothers and sisters who have been schooled in the faith have put together notes for us so that we can glean what the scripture says when we're having a hard time. I would encourage you to open your Bible and have a notepad and make some notes, but then check a study Bible because new theology has a name for it. It's called heresy, so you don't wanna do that. But you definitely want to let the spirit guide you, but a study Bible is great. And if you don't know, if you don't have a study Bible, if you're not sure what to do, Ask me, ask Kevin, ask Will, ask Jill, ask anybody, ask Brenna. We can point you in a direction of a good study Bible. But it also means journey groups. Journey groups study scripture together. Starting in, on September 11th, when we have journey launch, they're gonna be going through the sermon. They're gonna be going through the text that we're preaching on so that you're gonna be able to get in God's word together and talk about it. And then also we have equipping classes starting in the fall. Josh and Mallory McNatt are gonna be teaching through the old, uh, how to understand the Old Testament from an overarching view. Apply yourself, study God's word in Christian community. And then the third thing is just this, and this is the most important probably, is don't lose sight of the hope of the word. Don't lose sight of Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the word. He says so in Luke 24. Everything's pointing to him. Don't lose sight of the word, Jesus Christ, who speaks the word of the gospel over you. So wherever you're at today, I would just ask now that you would listen to the spirit, speak to the Lord, let him soothe your soul and refresh you. And then we will pray and sing. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you didn't just give us general revelation, that we live in an area of the world, we're so blessed. We don't just have a translation of your word in our language. We have many to choose from. Thank you for giving us your word. It's so merciful and kind of you to do it. Forgive us, Lord, for sometimes just treating it as though it doesn't matter. But allow it to shape us and mold our hearts to to soften hard hearts, to warm cold hearts, and to help us to use it as a way to find healing in you and to offer healing to the world around us that's so desperately in need of it. 
Thank you for being the hero of the word, Jesus. And now would you stir our affection and our love and our devotion to you this morning for the glory of your name.